Welcome to 54 Live, your live golf podcast. I am your host, Digsies, and we got another great show for you today. We are joined by Alan Shipnuck of the Fire Pit Collective and author of Phil, the rip-roaring and unauthorized biography of golf's most colorful superstar. We get into everything to do with Phil. Uh, we speak about live. We speak about the PGA. It was a great 40-plus minute conversation with Alan. Uh, we appreciate it very much. Um, there is a little interference around the seven-minute mark, I believe, but it is only for 30 seconds. So if you're listening and you hear the interference, just know that it stops very quickly. I fixed a little technical difficulty, um, but it was a great 40-minute interview. He gives us great insight into Phil's career, great insight on what to expect from Liv moving forward, what he thinks will happen with the World Golf Ranking Points, and Liv and PGA coming to an agreement down the line. So yeah, let's get right to it. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Alan Shipnuck. We are now joined by Alan Shipnuck of the Fire Pit Collective and author of one of the most anticipated golf books of all time, uh, Phil, the rip-roaring, unauthorized biography of golf's most colorful superstar. How's it going, Alan? Yeah, it's going great. Happy to be here. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, what an exciting summer in the golf world we just had, huh? Oh, it's been a gift from the content gods. I mean, you know, this this boring little sport of ours has just, just been one earthquake after another. So, yeah, it's been quite a summer. Yeah, especially after the Open and after the FedEx Cup playoffs, you know, things start to die down until like the Ryder Cup President's Cup. But not this year, that's for sure. Yeah, it just keeps going. I mean, uh, I'll, I'll be at the Live event next week in Chicago. And, you know, they've obviously they've they've filled out their roster in a big way. And it'd be interesting to see what more surprises there are. It seems like every every event they leak out a new name. So, you know, certainly the the tour championship was uh, was a crescendo for for the PJ tour season. And uh, so, yeah, it's it, it's been late summer has been action packed. I, I just feel like it's going to keep going. Yeah, been very exciting. And, and I, I agree with you. I feel like after the President's Cup is over, there might be a few more big announcements uh, for Liv. Yeah, and even the President's Cup in a weird way is um, going to... No one's ever really paid that much attention to the President's Cup, right? I mean, it's it, yeah. you'll watch it if you've got nothing else to do. But um, because now the, the international team, they're such underdogs, haven't, haven't lost a bunch of their best players to Liv. Um I think there's going to be a different fighting spirit. I think it means a little more to the PGA Tour as a showcase, and for the the, the U.S. guys who are there, you know, they feel like they're playing for something larger. And I think there'll be a, a kind of an interesting energy at the Presidents Cup, and it might be, even though it might not be close, I think people are going to be tuned in because it just has more meaning this time around. Yeah. And honestly, you never know. Maybe the international team will rally around each other, you know, being such big underdogs with their big stars not being on the team. And maybe they'll make it exciting for at least a day or two. Well, I mean, especially in golf, like the, the 100th ranked player can beat the number one player any day of the week in golf. Now, across four rounds, the better player is usually going to separate himself. But 18 holes, especially match play, I mean, anything is possible. So if... 
you know, I think with the international guys, they're going to be bonded, and I think they they know they're monumental underdogs. They have nothing to lose, and if, um, I think it'll be fun to watch how how it plays out and how the guys approach it. But yeah, I would, it's hard to imagine the U.S. won't win, but uh, that's that's why we play the games. I mean, crazy crazy things happen in sports. Yep, crazy things have happened. Now, before we get to the book, a little background on your career: uh, you spent 22 years at Sports Illustrated, uh, then you left for Golf Magazine for three years. And then just last March 2021, you signed on with Matt Janella and became a partner at the Fire Pit Collective. Uh, what went into your decision of leaving an old school brick and mortar media company for the new upstart? Yeah, I mean, the legacy media titles in golf have really been struggling, um, continue to struggle. Golf Magazine had a, a new owner, which is part of why I went over there uh, from Sports Illustrated, which was also struggling. Um, but it was a, it seemed like a promising situation, but didn't exactly see eye to eye with ownership or management and just couldn't really do the kind of stories that I wanted to do. And honestly, their business model was problematic. I mean, they had, they had one revenue stream, which was just advertisers, and everyone's chasing the same rolexes and mercedes and bmws and um it's a tough way to run a business you know for for the fire pit collective we had a totally different vision of of how to do it and what it could be and it was total creative freedom and um so there was there was it was kind of a mix of art and commerce that, that convinced me it was it was time to go yeah and you could you know pretty much focus on what you want to focus on and you know yeah. you don't really you know i guess you really don't since you're a partner you really have no one to report to correct yeah yeah it's great i mean it, it's um i'd recommend for anybody if you can <laughs> if you can be your own boss it's uh, it's quite liberating and it's fun i mean there's there's more stress and pressure because it's all you know it's on you to make it make it work but I'm um, I'm enjoying the challenge. You know, Matt Matt Janelle is one of my best friends. Go back to the '90s, and so we're we're having a, a blast building this with a lot of great uh, personalities and talented folks. And it's it is it was the right choice. I mean, we're really proud of, of where we are. It's really been only less than a year and a half, and you know, we hired Michael Bamberger, sort of the dean of the golf beat, another great friend of mine, and. Um, to see Bamberger unchained has been a blast. And, you know, we've Ryan Frunch, Monday Q Info, uh, Laz Versailles. Like, uh, there's, you can just go down the list. So we just have a very diverse, eclectic group of storytellers. So we're, we're proud of where we are and we, we have really grand ambitions for the future. So it's just, uh, just got to keep going. That's great. And I'm definitely enjoying the work that you guys are doing. There's some great articles, especially the, the um, recent one with, uh, I believe it was Jack and Lauren, the one about 9-11, United 93. Oh, that was a tearjerker, yeah, man. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I, it's interesting. I mean, six six years ago, six and a half years ago, I met uh, a local guy here on the Monterey Peninsula um, named Jack Grancolas and his 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 wife you know they were they were college sweethearts and she was pregnant at the time she she was lost aboard united 93 and as jack told me his, his life story it was you know this hearing about Lauren what an incredible individual she was and everything knew about what happened on the plane the hijackers 
think you know, countless lives on the ground in Washington, D.C. where that plane was hurtling toward. Um, and Jack's own kind of journey to, to understand and make peace with Lauren's death and, and finding her life. And he said, well, my, my PTSI therapist has been telling me that, um, you know, I should write all this stuff down. And so we just kind of embarked on this, on this journey to um, see where we'd go. And, you know, I just had this belief that he could definitely help people. He said, like, everyone has their own tragedies, whether it's cancer or a car accident. And um, he's, he's dug himself out of the deepest, darkest hole you could really ever imagine. And so he's... He's accrued a lot of wisdom along the way. And so he, he wanted to help people. He wanted to share that. And, you know, he really also had this profound belief that um, people needed to remember what happened on, on 9-11. There's, you know, generations now that were born yeah. after that. They don't have those visceral memories that some of us do. And they may not even know the story of United 93. Where, um, and so he really wanted all, not only his, his, his wife, but all the other people aboard to, to be remembered. So it, it was a really meaningful project. And, of course, I had no idea when we started on this in 2016 that it would sort of the geopolitics of golf would would somehow kind of align because, of course, Saudi Arabia funding funding Live Golf and with the connection between the Saudis and 9/11. And so, there's, I've had a few people on Twitter say, "Wow, you know, you just, this is, not, is this book in, in in response to Live Golf?" I was like man, this predates it by so many years, but <laughs> it's just, um, it's just kind of the way it's played out. It, that's kind of an interesting part of the story. Yeah. It, it was a great article. Definitely. That I read, uh, I read it this morning now, um, onto the book, uh, Phil, um, I bought the book for my annual vacation in Lake George with my uh, family and in-laws, and I literally finished it in three days. And it, it would have been sooner if my wife wasn't yelling at me to put the book down and spend time with the family. Uh, you know, it was a fantastic read. One of those books where you just say one more chapter, and before you know it, it's it's been three chapters later. Um, why Phil Mickelson, and when did you de- when did you decide to write the book? Well, you know, I've been covering Phil basically my whole career. Uh, my, my first year out on tour uh, was 1994 and as a reporter, and, and Phil was in his second full season on tour at that point. So, I've, you know, I've, I've just, I've always drawn to Phil. He's incredibly, you know, charismatic. We know that as a golfer, as an individual, and uh, I think more than any modern superstar, he kind of let fans and reporters in and he, he enjoyed the banter and he uh, of course some of it was calculating he saw the value and you know letting us help build his brand but um so I, i've always been drawn to phil like a lot of other reporters and um you know back in 2012 uh, michael bamberg and i published a novel called the swinger and it was pretty successful for a golf novel. And so Simon Schuster signed me to a, a book contract, kind of unspecified PJ tour book. And so it was always on the back of my mind. And I always wanted Phil to be a part of it. At one point I was thinking about a tiger and Phil book. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought about doing an update of kind of good walk spoiled and following, you know, maybe 20 guys across the season and, you know, Phil it always going to be one of those. Um, but I was busy raising kids and, with other projects and and then the pandemic hit and like everybody else i was just trapped at home kind of bored and i thought you know this would be a great time to work on a book and 
in in those ensuing years, you know, since since I'd signed that contract, field became way more interesting. You know, yes. there was, uh, of course, there was him throwing Tom Watson under the bus at the Ryder Cup and and everything that came with that. There was uh, the insider trading scandal. There was, was smacking the moving putt um, at Shinnecock Hills, the 2018 U.S. Open. And he'd embraced social media. He had sort of patched up his relationship with Tiger, and they'd become frenemies. And the match, uh, it was the match. You know, Phil had remade his body and his golf swing, and I, I thought Phil was wildly interesting back in 2012. And in the years since, it had only gotten more so. Um, so, somewhat, somewhat reluctantly, my my editor agreed to let me just do a straight Phil biography. Of, um, it was an interesting time because. There was really no access to players at tour events, and I wasn't traveling anyways. But so so many people in the game are also still stuck at home, bored. Yeah. And so I just went through my phone, and every player, agent, caddy, wife, trainer, I just called them up and you know asked them to tell me all their best Phil Mickelson stories and to um, and to drill down on so many different parts of of his life and his career. And so it was uh, it was kind of fortuitous. Uh, people were just available, and so. Um, you know, I, the, I was already, um, halfway through the research and then Phil won the PGA championship. And so it just like, just keeps going. And then the, the live golf started percolating and yeah. it was like, um, there was so many twists and turns in, in the reporting and writing of the story, but, uh, it, you know, it just, just kept getting more and more layered. Yeah, one of my questions was actually going to be about, uh, you know, you, you spent most of the pandemic researching, and I actually counted um, at the end, you had 106 people to give comments, Gol like you said, golfers, coaches, members of the media, even Phil's high school girlfriend. And it feels like it's kind of like the pandemic was like a little blessing in disguise for the book, because you were able to get these people on the phone, and they had nothing to do but to talk about Phil. Yeah, it was it was great. And yeah, even that list of players, I mean, some of, that's not even the totality of it because some, some people would only speak on background and um, some people weren't, I interviewed, but they didn't quote, but they still kind of informed my thinking. And this, it was, uh, it was quite, it was quite an interesting um, exercise. So, uh, yeah, it was, you know, the, the live stuff just turbocharged the, the release of the book, but yeah. it, it was always going to, you know, Phil's such a compelling person that I, I think it was always going to be an interesting read. Well, I heard you say on the No Laying Up podcast that nowadays you have to drum up your own publicity for books. It's not like the older days where, you know, like they only have like one publicist for, you know, thousands of books, I believe you said. So everything with Liv, that infamous phone call you had, you know, that the excerpt that came out in February, that was perfect to drum up the publicity because everybody wanted to get their hands on that book after that. Yeah, yeah, it was just such an interesting confluence of events, um, and yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it's um, it's much more of a DIY industry now, and you know, social media is powerful. Uh, ha having the, the Fire Pit Collective uh, platform was helpful, so it, it was a little bit of guerrilla marketing. I mean, um, but. It, it was always, you know, Phil is just, he has a unique gift for stirring the pot. And he always, he's had that his whole career. I mean, it's all laid out in the book, like all the controversies he's been part of and mostly talked his way out of. But 
um, there was always going to be some juiciness if you're writing a Phil Mickelson book. And I, I didn't know how juicy it was going to get, but <laughs> I, I knew I knew it was going to happen. It, it came inevitable. In. You started at the perfect time. Now, it boggles my mind that after a 30-plus year career being so polarizing, you know, the most well-known golfer of this era, not named Tiger Woods, that this was the first autobiography, I'm sorry, biography uh, about Phil Mickelson. You know, there's been so many books about Tigers, uh, Tiger Woods. Do you think that other authors were scared to get in the ring with Phil, per se? Um. I don't know. It's an interesting question. I mean, it's Tiger is, he's, he's just blotted out the sun, you know, in this era. And, and it's been hard to get beyond Tiger who, you know, obviously is, is a transcendent athlete and he's, there's been so much messiness in his life, but you know, Tiger's an introvert and he's kind of led in some ways a boring life. And then it's been, there's been these exclamation points of like scandal, but day to day, you know, he's, he has a very small circle of people around him. He doesn't live large. You know, you don't see him in Vegas. You don't, he's always been kind of secretive and shadowy. It, you know, Phil lives out loud and he's, he's an extrovert, unlike Tiger. And he loves to be around people and he loves to be at the center of things. And um, so, I really can't say why there there wasn't a Mickelson biography because, um, you know, there's various Seve biographies and Greg Norman biographies and um, Payne Stewart biographies. And you, you go on down like the keynote players, uh, somebody usually takes a swing, but yeah. um, I, you know, I, I really can't say. And again, Phil's, he's been a master manipulator of the media and um, it could be that, that, you know, folks were intimidated to take it on because, you know, with Phil, it's always going to be complex because he never opens his mouth without an agenda. And, and uh, I don't know. It's I can't really answer that question, but I'm delighted that no one had ever done it because it was it was just so much interesting material. Just just waiting for someone to come and yeah. and, and and scoop it all up and put it between the two covers of one book. Yeah. And I think, I think you hit it right in the head. I think that, you know, like you said, he was a master man, a manipulator with the media. I, I just think nobody wanted to, you know, deal with that. And, you know, if they were wanted to get a comment on the book and for him to go on record, they would have had to do things his way. And being so polarizing with everything we saw in the book you wrote, you know, nobody wanted to, you know, color inside the lines when they wrote the book about Phil, you know, that, that's what I think. Yeah, I think you're right. Now, the book starts out with a confrontation between you and Phil at the 1999 PGA Championship. Um, someone wrote into your column and asked, who was the one pregnant, Amy or Phil? Phil was pissed off by this. And when I was reading it, it reminded me of like a mob movie, like The Bronx Tale. You know, he takes you aside under the grandstand, away from prying eyes. You know, it's like he locks the door and says, now you can't leave. Um, I don't want to give away too much of the book, but what what happened next? How, how did you feel when you were still a young journalist at the time and, you know, he's coming up to you like that? Yeah, that was a contentious moment. And again, you know, Phil's always like to control the narrative around him. And th those were the early days of the internet. And I think all of us were, were still reconciling um, how the landscape had changed and that the fans had their own voice now. And, you know, Phil didn't like the criticism. He didn't like people taking shots at him. And 
I was kind of the 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 middleman there, and so uh, it was it was interesting. I mean, it, it was not a comfortable moment, but it was also as a reporter, what you want from the athletes is for them to be real, and you want to know who they really are. And that in that moment, that was as raw and real as Phil will ever get. You know, all the artifice had been stripped away, and so it was it was interesting. And it, I think that that moment's part of why I always wanted to write the book because. I, I I personally witnessed and felt a different side to Phil that, that the public never gets to see, you know, um, the the waving, the thumbs up, the always saying the right thing in front of the cameras. Um, but I saw him on a much more like visceral kind of elemental level. And so um, it was a very instructive moment for me. And I think that was probably the day this book really was born, even though I didn't know it. Yeah. And it's crazy reading the book, how there's two sides of Phil. Some people say, I love him. He's the most generous person in the world. Other people are like, I hate him. You know, he made fun of my weight or what have you. So it's crazy to see that everybody has their own take on Phil. Yeah, that's why he's such a great subject for biography, because love him or hate him, you know, he inspires emotion. And that's what you want. I mean, people... uh, he has he has fans who have stuck by him through a lot. He has his detractors, but either way, they're interested in what he's saying and doing. And um, you know, like someone just asked me, like, "What's your next book?" You should do a Roy McElroy um, biography. And I, I, of course, Roy's a great player. He's mm-hmm. a great statesman. He says the right thing all the time. Yeah, he's he's a he's he's a classy guy. We can all agree with that. Um, but I don't know what the second chapter is, you know, like, yeah. uh, there's just, he's had a much smaller life than Phil Mickelson. And, um, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's just, um, he doesn't these, give the media anything to run with, you know, recently he has with live, but yeah. before that he's always saying the right thing. Yeah. And beyond that, I mean, he's just, he's just been kind of a linear thing. I mean, he was, he was great at golf you know, working class background. Um, and like, there's, there's, a, there's a lot to celebrate about Rory, but I, I don't know what you do after the first 10,000 words. Whereas Phil, it's just, it just keeps coming. It's just <laughs> endless. What the mischief he's gotten himself into and the heartbreaks and, and the high wire acts and the, the thrilling victories and the crushing defeats. And, um, you know, the, the scandals and the, his wife's getting breast cancer and you just go down the list. Like it's, he's had such a big life and it's all played out in public. And, uh, you know, same with Jordan Spieth. I love Jordan Spieth. I love to watch him play golf. I think he's a fantastic interview. I think he's a, he's a terrific human being, but uh, you know, again, there's just not enough to carry a whole book there. And, but Phil's had a very singular uh, journey. Yeah, he's a gambler. He loves the action. You know, like that, that that one story about uh, Tom Candioti. I'm not going to give it away. I want the listeners to buy the book, but that story was fantastic. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, yeah, there's just so many legends that have grown up around Phil. It was fun to, uh, I'd heard fragments of different stories. It's fun to go to the protagonist and then have them tell it to me directly. And <laughs> um, yeah, it's, I know, I, they're, you're right. There's, there's so much there. 
Now, the infamous phone call that happened in November of 2021. Um, before this, you reached out to Phil three different times to comment on the record for the book. He declined. Uh, he even went as far as offering you a job to be a consultant for him as he started his campaign against the PGA Tour for more money. Um, on the phone call, everybody knows by now, but he admitted to you that the Saudis were scary motherfuckers, but their money gave the golfers leverage over Jay Monahan. Now, we all, we all agree Phil's a very smart guy. He knew the phone call would get out, especially since you guys never agreed to go off the record. Do you think he did this on purpose, knowing you would publish the story? Or did he just get caught up hearing himself talk and emotions and rambled on? Yeah, maybe somewhere in between. I mean, I, I don't know exactly what Phil was planning to tell me when he picked up the phone and called me. Um, it, wa it was an emotional call, and he was getting more and more worked up because th these are things he, he felt passionate about. So it's entirely likely that he said more than he meant to. Um, but it's it's not my role to be, you know, a lifeguard there. If if he wants if he wants to go to the edge of the cliff and look down and the water looks refreshing, he wants to take the plunge. I mean, I'm just there to record what he has to say. So, um, you know, what's interesting is everything that Phil said is is more or less played out and. You know, he was right on a lot of things. Now, the way he handled it might have been wrong. And, you know, he was kind of working in the shadows and he was he was playing both sides against each other. And this is all done in secret. And there's, there's a lot to critique in, in the way he handled it. But, uh, you know, one of his, his big talking points was the players needed more of a voice and they needed more power. Well, that's come true. You know, yeah. the, the way Rory and Tiger have, have sort of reorganized the entire sport. And then the players deserved more money and a bigger slice of the pie and that the tour was sitting on all these reserves and that money should go to the players well that's come true and the the, the you know the players should have more say in their media rights to be able to do more creative things and instead of the tour working against them the tour should support it well that's happened now with this um indoor golf league that tiger and rory have created and that um, you know, the players should be able to monetize their likenesses, you know, and mint NFTs and make money that way. Well, the the tours now established a platform for its players, and you can go down the list of everything Phil was asking for has come true. Yeah, and uh, so it'll be interesting to see how how history judges this. You know, we're still a little there's a little recency bias. It's a little too soon, but yeah, there's a long uh, way to go, but he has to feel vindicated because everything that he was, you know, even you read it in the book, everything that he discussed in the book and you went over in the book has just happened. Jay Monahan just implemented that. So, you know, yeah. Phil was right all along and you know what, maybe it did just take one guy to come out and say it. And, you know, obviously if Liv wasn't here, I don't think they would have been as quick to make these changes. I think maybe eventually they would have, but Liv definitely pushed their hands. And a lot of the PGA Tour players can, you know, thank that because, you know, they're getting a ton of money now. At least the top 20 are. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can argue because of Phil Mickelson, billions of dollars are flowing to the to professional golf and to the players. And, you know, some of these forces were already at work and may may or may not have happened without Phil's advocacy. But he... He sped things up massively, and uh, so it's it's an interesting part of his legacy. I mean, he's always thought of himself as this agent of change. You know, when you saw the Ryder Cup effort, um, yeah, that was a very calculating decision. Like, okay, I'm I'm going to go into this press conference and I'm going to air out all our grievances, and that's going to create so much momentum for change that that 
the PGA of America is going to have to rethink how we run the Ryder Cup from the American side. And that's what's come to pass. And the U.S. has won two of the last three Ryder Cups yeah. since Phil's rebellion. And it's entirely likely they're going to win like six of the next seven. I mean, you look at the teams and the young yeah. talent. And, um, so, you know, again, Phil was right. Now, the way he handled it might have been wrong. Like, did he have to blow up Tom Watson in front of the world? Maybe not. But um, that was that was the choice he made. So, it's uh, he's just a fascinating character. I mean, that's yeah. the bottom line. And, and like that decision that he made to to blow up at the press conference, it the task force came right after that. And like you said, they won two of the last three, and that's because of the task force. And they're actually you know looking to the future. And like you said about the Europeans, Rory just said it this week at the BMW uh, PGA. He said that. Team Europe is in a team uh, in a state of transitioning, and uh, they they need to rebuild because a lot of the guys Sergio Westwood, um, Poulter they're gone. You know they're not going to be coming back um, most likely. So they need to get the young guys out there to rebuild. So USA is definitely you know I feel like the favorites for the next you know at least few Ryder Cups. Oh yeah, for sure. Now, the book really starts off with a bang. It ends ends with a bang. Um, but in the middle, you really get a great, in-depth, unbiased look at the at his career. And I, I got to say that because you really did. You, you told both sides of the story. Um, what time period in Phil's career was your favorite to write about? Mm, that's a good question. I mean, it was fun to, to go back and look at, you know, basically 2004 to say 2013 is really Phil's prime, obviously. It's when he's winning majors. It's when um, he's challenging Tiger. And you kind of forget that from 2008 onward, he really had Tiger's number. Now, of course, Tiger was diminished by the scandal and, and all that. But there was a period there where Phil was beating him regularly. And, um, and so it was fun to recreate the, the thrilling victories and you know, obviously the, the, the crushing defeats like Wingfoot and, and some others, Shinnecock. And, um, and that's, that's the heart of Phil's career. But, you know, late period Phil is, is really fascinating. And of course, the PGA Championship win is, is electric. And so, I mean, that, that, but even early Phil is fascinating too because yeah. he was a great player, but he could. The near misses. The near misses and the angst and the, the efforts to rebuild his game. And, so, I mean, that's the thing. He's been, he's been, uh, it's been riveting all the way through. Trying out brand new equipment the week before the Ryder Cup. <laughs> it's yeah, just, exactly. there's, there's just so much. There's so much. Um, where would you rank Phil all time? Yeah, I mean, he's definitely one of the, the dozen greatest players of all time. I don't think there's any doubt about that when you, when you look at the record. And, you know, the, not only the six majors, but the 45 wins, that's a huge number. I mean, I don't think. You know, Roy's now at what twenty-two. Like he's he's not even halfway to fill. Um, just as as a week in, week out force, uh, we may not see another player like like no. Phil just from just the quantity of victories and you know the um, the longevity. You, you for thirty years, one of the best players in the game without fail. Now Tiger's peaks were higher, but. You know, you could say Tiger's career was basically 12 years, um, 97 to 2009. And then he had, you know, he had a, 2013 was, was a good year and 2019 was the, the he was, was a great year. But, um, you know, for, Phil did it for 30 years. It's absolutely phenomenal. So 
the quality and the quantity, I mean, you could easily make a case that he's a top top 10 all-time player. I have maybe 11th or 12th, but you're splitting hairs at that point. Yeah. Obviously, if you could have picked off the U.S. Open, he's, 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 it's different. He's just going even farther north on a very, very select list. Yeah, I, I I would agree. I would say 10, 11, 12, right, right around that area. He's definitely, uh, I honestly think when you take a step back, you could th- say he's easily close to being a top 10 player of all time. He has to be, you know, with, yeah. with the wins, the majors, and, and the way that the golf is now with the amount of talent on tour, you know, I don't think that you're going to have people that get that many wins and that many majors. Like, look how hard it's been for Rory to to get his fifth major. You know, it's been forever now. Yeah, I mean, look at Dustin Johnson, who we can all agree is is just an incredible physical talent. I mean, twenty five, yeah, tw- yeah, twenty five tour wins and two majors. He's not even halfway to fill, really. So, no. uh, I mean, you take Dustin, if you take Dustin and Rory, and you combine them, that's Phil's career. Like that, that's how good Phil was for for that long. Yeah, that's a good point. You're right on track because Dustin has what twenty five, Rory twenty, yeah, forty seven, and six majors. Right there. Yeah. Wow. That's filled. Yep. So, That's crazy uh, when you take a step back and think about that. Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, Michael Bamberger just wrote an article on the Fire Pit Collective asking, was Sunday the day Live Golf arrived? You know, after that great ending, the playoff, eagle putt Dustin Johnson had to win. Um, what do you think the answer to that is? Yeah, it was, it was big because um, – you know, Dustin in the when when Liv first announced, Dustin was clearly their headliner. You know, I mean, Phil had the juice, but he, you know, Dustin's ten years younger and is still a threat. And you know, he's just coming off of a five and zero Ryder Cup and um, all of that. And so, um, and Brandon Grace is a good player. So Charles Schwartz will show is so is Henrik Stenson. But um, you know, Dustin took it to a different level. He's also everyone likes Dustin, right? I mean, no one's really mad at him for going because he's just, he's just been very transparent. Yeah, it was, the money was great and I could play less golf and whatever, like very easy uh, going, very easy going. He hasn't gotten wrapped up in all the politics. And so I think some, some players who have gone to live have lost chunks of their fan base. But I think in Dustin's case, people just love Dustin and he's fun to watch and, you know, to do it with a walk-off Eagle, um, Liv needed that, you know. They they need their their they need their stars to really come through. You know, they need Kepka to win. They need Phil to win. Um, they need Cam Smith to win. And then it just becomes absolutely impossible to ignore. You know, a guy like Stenson who hadn't won in six years, it, then it becomes easy to dismiss. But when you have guys, you know, in their thirties who are who are still going to be threats at the majors, uh, when when they're winning tournaments and creating headlines, that's a big deal. Yeah. And even with DJ, like I know the official world golf rankings don't say he is right now, but anytime he's playing like, like he, he played this past weekend, I consider him a top 10 golfer in the world. He's just that talented. Oh yeah. I mean, top five. Like, yeah. I, I don't, yeah. I mean, he, he may have his little lulls, but when, when Dustin's feeling it, like look out and I, it's going to be a really fascinating thing in, in 2023 is the majors have always been important. Now they've become so much more so because it's the only time all year we're going to get all these players together. And I think the Dustin's, the Kepka's, um, I think they're going to come, they're going to play really hard. It's, it's, um, it has more meaning for them now. And 
uh, it's going to be fascinating. So this is, it's not the end of Dustin Johnson. I mean, we're going to keep hearing from him. Now you'd think the majors won't cause any, you know, problems. They'll let everybody play. Well, I mean, Dustin is, he's in those, like the Dustin Brooks, Cam Smith, like they have their exemptions from their victories and from from other, other things. So I think if you've already, if you've already earned your way in, they're going to let you stay in. Like they're not going to deny Cam Smith. Um, he's just he's the reigning champion of of, mm-hmm. of, of the British Open. And there's seven but, Masters champions. Uh, well, no, seven Green Jackets on live, two by Bubba. Right. So I, I think all those guys are going to be welcome. Now, the, the 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 majors could play hardball when it comes to the world ranking. If that doesn't get sorted out here in the next you know, six months, then all, all those guys, most of those guys are going to, are going to drop out of the top 15. Um, and, you know, Augusta could wash their hands of it and say, Hey, listen, we've got our rules. You got to be top 50. You're not top 50. You're out. I, I think that'd be a mistake. I mean, I think it devalues the masters or any of the majors if they don't have the best players there. But um, if, if they want to be loyal to the tour and to tradition, then, uh, they can just they can just sort of abdicate and 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 put it all on on the world rankings committee, which is also compromised because it's the tour has a say in that and you know there's all these incestuous relationships between the PGA Tour and the RNA and the PGA of America and these other voting members. So it's um that's really the the biggest fight in all of this. Do you think Liv gets world ranking points in a year? I think they have to. I mean, you got you got ranking points for you know, the corn fairy and for, for for all these minor tours and, you know, live now has a bunch of major championship winners. They've got future hall of famers. They have, they have the best player in the world, Cameron Smith. Like how can you not give them points? It becomes, it, it just makes the world ranking meaningless. If if you're going to, if, you know, 20 of the 50 best players in the world are not, we all know, are of that caliber if they're not even if they're not even in the top 100 or they're not even showing up because they are, they haven't played the minimum number of qualifying events like it, it completely destroys the credibility of the world ranking that doesn't serve that doesn't serve the world ranking either like um so some something's got to give i mean maybe live goes to 72 holes um or um you know there's 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 probably both sides are gonna have to give a little but yeah um, I don't think that's a big deal. No, I, I don't. I wouldn't mind that either. Um, where do you see Live Golf in in five years? That's that's an interesting question. I mean, yeah, it's everything's changing so fast. I mean, I think I think they're just here to stay. I really do. Um, the the question is, you know, Monahan has obviously demonized Greg Norman and Liv. And when, when you do that, it becomes hard to cut any kind of deal. But if you have a change in leadership, and maybe that includes Norman because he's a very polarizing character. If you had new people on both sides, they could declare, you know, a truce and create some sort of this, this unified global schedule. Um, you know, that I think that'd be, that would bring the game back into one together would be advantageous. I think everyone would get what they want in that scenario. So I think that that's possible, but um, I don't know. It's of course this antitrust case looms over everything. 
that's not going to get sorted out until next fall, right? Well, no, it got January 24 now. And, oh, wow. Um, that's just the way they're going to start arguing it. Who knows yeah. how long it's going to take? I mean, I think, I don't think Liv has a great case. Like, they've got, it's hard to say there's a monopoly when you've sucked up a bunch of the best players <laughs> and um, you're playing big time tournaments. Like, how can that really how could that really be a monopoly? No, so, I agree. I think, I think as lives succeeds, they hurt. They, every time they sign another player, they, they, they increase their schedule. Uh, I think they're hurting their antitrust case, but it's still, it's still there. And it's a doomsday scenario for the tour. And so maybe they can force some sort of compromise, just the threat of the litigation. But I don't, I don't feel I'm not, a, I'm not a lawyer. I just play one on the internet, but <laughs> I don't see how, how live can win that case. Um, claiming the tours monopoly when they're they've they've taken they've taken the tour players and they, they're offered more money and they're breaking into all these markets and uh so anyway that that's but that that's out there still so it's going to be fascinating to watch this all play out now you know more than me what's stopping the dp world tour from i know they have an agreement with the pga tour um what's stopping them from saying you know what you guys can come play over here on off weeks like I know they're allowed yeah, to mean, play at the BMW this I'm, week, but that's because they were already qualified, correct? But like next year, what's stopping them from you know creating an agreement with Liv? Well, I mean, the PJ Tour now owns what forty percent of the Euro Tour, so okay. that's what's stopping them. I mean, they they threw in with the PGA Tour. They may be regretting it, but they're they're aligned, and the ability for for European Tour guys to earn a, a card on the PJ Tour that that was always a an important piece of it and it only becomes more so now with the money on the pj tour going up so i think uh, i think they've they cut their deals and, and they're sort of committed to it now i don't if keith pelly wanted to play ultimate hardball and and do a deal with live i mean he probably would have enough votes he could probably make it happen but it would be extremely complex and they'd probably have to buy out the pj tour's interests and it, it gets it gets very messy mm. so i you know they 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 saw safety in numbers and and the European Tour kind of ran to the PGA Tour to 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 make this alliance and whether they regret it or not I think they're stuck with it. Yeah, I, I knew they had some sort of agreement. I didn't realize it was forty percent. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, and that just happened in the spring, correct? Yeah, I mean the 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 tour increased its commitment. I think originally it was ten or fifteen percent, and then then they doubled down. So it's you know it was a good move by the PGA Tour. Like they pretty much. They pretty much locked up the European tour, but from the European tour's perspective, they're going to very quickly be relegated. Um, you know, they they were the European tour was the second best tour in the world. It's going to be number four here very quickly because the Asian tour is, yeah. is going to have to be giving out more money, and it becomes a path to live. And um, their developmental tours are going to be extremely well capitalized. So, yeah, I had um, Travis Smythe on last week, and he plays on the Asian tour, and he said the guys over there are just so happy with the money that the Saudis invested and the way with the international series order of merit they can get points now to go play on Live. So, you know, Live really, you know, teamed up with the Asian tour, and it's doing big things for the guys over there. Yeah, yeah, no, the, the entire landscape of professional golf has changed, and you know, also like. The European Tour lost so many of its stars. Like, like Lee Westwood is no longer a week in, week out force. Neither Sergio Garcia or Ian Poulter or Paul Casey or Martin Keimer or Graham McDowell. But 
they have box office and people care about them. They've been following these guys for 20 years and they're invested in their stories and they feel connected to them. And yeah. like, like, you know, some like, it's like Phil and Tiger in the U S you know, exactly. Everywhere. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, that was a blow to the European tour. They have, they have some young talent, but those guys don't sell tickets or move the needle. Like, like some of these, these old timers do. So that, that's a, another, another factor in all this. Yeah. Well, all right, Alan, thank you so much for uh, joining the podcast. We took up enough of your time. I said it'd only be 20 minutes and we're 45 minutes into it. So uh, I really appreciate it. Um, anybody that hasn't bought it already, go out and buy it now. Phil, the rip roaring and unauthorized biography of golf's most colorful superstar. Uh, thank you again, Alan. We really appreciate it. All right. Thanks for having me. Take care. Okay. Bye. All right. And again, a big thank you to Alan Shipnuck for that interview. Um, great insight into Phil, Live Golf, many other things. I know I plugged the book twice, but I'm being honest here. I'm not just saying it because he came on the show. I'm not just saying it to be nice. If you have not read the Phil Unauthorized Biography by now, go on Amazon, buy it. It will be here in two, three days. I promise you, you will bang it out in a week. It's that good. So again, thank you to Alan. Back-to-back weeks, we've had great guests last week with Travis Smythe, this week with Alan Shipnuck, and I promise you it will continue to come. I said it before Portland when I went on the AM Drive show with Aaron and Mike that I wanted to be the biggest live golf podcast around, and that is still a goal of mine. So listen, tell your friends, tell your families, we're doing big things over here at 54 Live now. Back to the action this weekend, we had an amazing finish to Live Golf Boston. Uh, The big names, Dustin Johnson, Lee Westwood, plus three new signings, Anibal Lahiri, Jauko Neiman, and Cam Smith. They were all jockeying down the stretch to win the tournament, and we got our first ever playoff. Uh, Dustin Johnson beat Jocko Neiman and Anabar Lahiri on the first hole of the playoff. Uh, DJ hit a bomb to the left side of the fairway, had a beautiful look at the green, made it on in two, and had a 35-foot look at Eagle. Uh, Lahiri hit the fairway, missed the green, and Neiman felt the pressure on the tee. Uh, He hit it way right. It was going into the woods, but it hit a man in the chest. Uh, The on-course reporter went over to the man to see if he was all right, did a quick interview, and it turns out the man's name was Rich. He was 66 years old, and he just wants the PGA and live to get along. Uh, He used the time to politic a little, um, but I'm sure the mention of PGA on the coverage uh, wasn't, uh, it didn't sit too well with the live guys. Anyway, uh, DJ stood over his eagle putt, and I said to my wife, he's he's making this, okay? It, It would be a perfect ending to the tournament, a perfect way for DJ to get his first live win, and it's just like when you're looking at something and like you have that gut feeling, I knew DJ was gonna sink that putt and he did uh you know he he sank the putt and he was great all week and he just kept getting better and better as the week went on uh he started three under friday seven under saturday and he closed with the five under to make the playoff and like i said he, he very well could have won it in regulation he hit his approach shot over the green into the trees it was up against the limb and tv wires uh, if he was a little to the left he could have gotten relief from the led leaderboard but he scrambled chipped out 
put it to around eight feet and buried the par putt. Now, Lee Westwood, he just missed out on the play playoff. We had a 59-60 watch all day with Lee. He was going low. He was playing great. He was nine under on the day, tied for first with DJ Neiman and Lahiri when he finished the 18th hole. Uh, he went to, he started on four. Um, so, his last hole of the day would be hole three. So 18 was, he had three holes left after 18. Uh, he bogeyed hole number one. He dropped back to eight under. Uh, he stuck one super close on his second to last hole, made birdie. Uh, then he found the bunker on his last hole. He couldn't get up and down. Uh, but after all that, he finished with an eight under 62. And it was the best round in live history. So he came up one short of the playoff and you got to feel bad for Westwood man he's always the bridesmaid never the bride he has three second place finishes in majors three third place finishes in majors he's always so close but he never gets the job done and he definitely is on the list of best players to never have won a major but speaking of major champions Cam Smith put on a show in Boston for his first live event. He made four eagles on the week, two in the opening round when he blazed to a six under 64. He got the seven under on the week after round two, and then he got it hot again on Sunday. He made a charge up the leaderboard. Uh, at times, he was tied for first, but on his last hole, which was the first hole, we saw Lee Westward having trouble on that first hole when he made a bogey. Cam Smith's last hole was the first hole. Um, he drove it right hit it into the woods. He couldn't recover. He made a bogey and he missed the playoff uh, by one shot. So uh, it was good to see Cam Smith out there. The fans were behind him. And I think we're going to see a lot out of the punch team uh, with Cam Smith, Lee Leishman, and the other Aussies. Uh, in the team competition, uh, the four aces won their third in a row. Uh, they're becoming a dynasty out there like the Lakers, Celtics, Yankees, what have you. At one point on the back nine, the Ironheads, led by Kevin Nah, had a five-shot lead, but they ended up faltering. The Aces stormed back, beat them by six. That's an 11-shot difference, which is insane. And the Ironheads dropped all the way out of the money. They didn't even cash. Uh, Bryson and the Crushers took second place. Lee Poulter and the Majestics took third. It was the third time this year that the Majestics cashed in the team competition. They've had two thirds one second and it was the second second place finish for the crushers they came in second in london but that was before bryson was on the team i don't even remember who was on the crushers back then i feel like the team is totally different now um but yeah like i said four aces again three in a row and it will be interesting to see come live chicago next week if one of these teams steps up and tries to take the you know championship away from the four aces because the way it's going right now the individual competitions have been a lot more exciting than the team competitions because when it comes to the team competitions it's been four aces all day long it's, I hope the Majestics get going. Hopefully, Stenson will be back. He missed this this week's tournament at Boston uh, with an injury. They had to have a substitute for him. Um, Westy's playing good. You get Stenson playing good like he did at Bedminster. Maybe we could get a Majestics four aces rivalry going, a little uh, Europe versus USA rivalry. Uh, that would be nice to see. Um, and 
Maybe another team jumps up that punch with Cam Smith and Leishman. The Aussies, you got Europe, Australia versus USA. That will be a nice three-team rivalry. Uh, Hopefully, it gets going at the end of this year. If not, hopefully, it picks up in 2023. Now, looking at the individual standings for Liv after the four events so far, Dustin Johnson holds a commanding lead over Brandon Grace by 17 points. Dustin Johnson has 94 points. Brandon Grace has 77 points. And both of those guys are ahead by 30 over the next crew of Carlos Ortiz and Terry Gooch. Both of them have 48 points. It's actually 29, but 30 sounds better. Um, in fifth, we have Matthew Wolf with 47 points. Sixth, Charles Swartzel, 42 points. 40 of those points came in London when he won the first event. Henrik Stenson's in seventh with 40 points. All those points came in Bedminster. Patrick Reed, 40 points as well. He's in eighth. Louis Ushuizen's in 35, uh, has 35 points in ninth place. He has gained points in every single event so far. In 10th place is Lee Westwood with 32 points. Now, you got Henny Duplaise, uh, Henny Duplaise's in 11th with 30 points. I don't even think he's on the tour anymore. Um, Lahiri has 30 points after his second place finish. Um, in Boston, he's in 12th. Sergio's in 13 with 25. Yelko Neiman is in 14th with 24. And Sam Horsfield is in 15th place with 24 points. But looking at it right now, it's going to come down to, I would say, one of these guys in the top eight. Um It'd be very hard for Dustin Johnson to throw it away. Brandon Grace has a shot to catch him. But if Gooch continues his hot play, Ortiz gets hot. Uh, Wolf has been playing well. Maybe see what Stenson can do. But at the end of the day, I feel like it's going to be uh, Dustin Johnson unless Grace catches him. Now, Now, speaking of Matthew Wolf, he had a good start in the tournament. And the last two weeks I've seen him play... Other than the the final round on Sunday, he's played some of the best golf I've seen him play since he won the 3M back in 2019. Um, On Sunday, he started putting horribly. He threw his putter into the woods. Uh, He had a seven under final round at Bedminster, what got him a second place finish. Uh, Then he started Boston with the seven under round, including an ace and an eagle. Um, And it's funny how ironic it is that his putter has let him down because Liv Golf, the commentators, completely mushed him because right before he started missing these easy putts, they put up a stat showing that he was in the top three of putting on Liv this year. And then right when they put that up, he starts missing putts left and right, and he breaks his putter and throws it into the woods. So, hey. I think that Matthew Wolf uh, has a lot to give. And when you look at the top five, you got Wolf as a youngin, Gooch as a youngin, Ortiz as a youngin, and they're going to be chasing down the veterans of Dustin Johnson and Brandon Grace. All right, that does it for episode seven of 54 Live. We will be back next week with the preview of Live Golf Chicago, and we'll have some other news to cover that we missed this week because we had such a packed episode. Um, So make sure to subscribe on all your podcast services, Apple, Spotify. Follow us on Twitter. 
Twitter at 54LivePod, TikTok at 54LivePod, rate, review. And uh, yeah, this is Digsy signing off, and we will see you next week. Have a great weekend. Later.